Would you please turn with me in your Bibles once again to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, we will be reading uh, once again the first eight verses. You remember last week we read the first eight verses, we put most of our focus on verses 1 through 3, so we'll be reading the first eight verses of 13 again this morning, focusing primarily on verses 4 through 8. So we are now looking together at what is really the conclusion of this heartfelt plea of a loving under-shepherd of the great shepherd towards his beloved flock to stay the course by faith, to cling to Jesus Christ and avail themselves to the many blessings that he has poured into their lives for that very purpose. And as I mentioned to you last week, this final chapter is not just some sort of haphazard firing off of useful tips for the Christian life. It's not just some kind of aside to everything else that has already been said. Nor is this faithful shepherd, having spent the entirety of this letter, pointing his hearers towards the unfathomable glories of Jesus Christ, now telling them the things that they need to do in order to sort of make it all happen. These concluding thoughts of this epistle absolutely flow out of everything that went before them. The writer here in this final chapter is explaining to his sheep the way in which Jesus Christ is working and will continue to work in and through the lives of those who, by the grace of Almighty God, belong to his unshakable kingdom. And last week we saw that one of the many, many blessings that we have in this life that we have been made pilgrims in is, of course, that we are not alone. God, in His mercy, has given to us one another to share in one another's lives through both good times and through bad times, through joyful times and through difficult times. We are not all nobles in this kingdom, acting independently of our king, seeking what is best for us as individuals. In fact, life in this kingdom requires the death of self-interest. Never the preservation of it. That's life in the kingdom of God. Death of self-interest, never the preservation of it. We are called to die to ourselves and to live for Jesus Christ. We are called to take up our crosses and follow our Lord. And He, in His wisdom and mercy, has not made us just a part of any community. It's not just any community. We've been made into a community that we are told in the Word of God is holy, is set apart for God. As we looked last week, it's a community that will by its very nature be marked out in this world by its love. We talk about it all the time, beloved. You and I are to bear one another's burdens. We are to come joyfully alongside of one another 
in love. And it's not just a duty that we perform through gritted teeth in order to find favor with God. In fact, as we've talked about many, many times, if that is our motivation, we will most certainly grow weary in our supposed well-doing. We will wear out. You understand, we talked about it in Sunday school this morning. If we're doing it strictly out of duty, against our desire, we will wear out. But as servants of our gracious and unshakable King, we do these things because it is our delight to do these things. Beloved, I trust you recognize the difference. Service that is motivated by love for God and love for his fellow image bearers is service that actually strengthens and never weakens the people of God. It's a service that completes our joy in Jesus Christ and never diminishes our joy in Jesus Christ. It's a gauge by which you and I are to judge the motivation lying behind all of the things that we do. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the motivation for the things I do? Is that motivation itself honoring to God? Or am I truly much more concerned with myself? Do I simply look out for number one, me and myself? Though that seems to be the siren call of our culture, It most certainly is not now, nor has it ever been the call of life in this kingdom, the glorious kingdom of Almighty God. Because we have had immeasurable compassion poured out upon our own lives, beloved, it ought to be our joy to go and to do likewise to those whom God, in His sovereign wisdom, in His magnificent providence, those whom He has placed in our own paths in this life. So I'm asking you, do you love actively? That's the first exhortation here as he closes this letter, right? Let brotherly love continue. You understand, spend yourselves, living not for yourselves, but for one another, even as the Lord Jesus Christ spent himself for you. And you can imagine that the original recipients of this letter had to have been encouraged by that. They were not alone in their suffering. Their afflictions did not exist in isolation from their brothers and sisters in Christ. They're a part of something that is much, much bigger than themselves. They are each a part of the wonderful, glorious bride of Jesus Christ. They're part of the church. This morning, we're going to look at just a few of the other benefits that they, and we for that matter, have as members of the church of Jesus Christ. Though the world around them was absolutely crushing them with blow after heart-wrenching blow, an attempt, in an attempt to get them to renounce Jesus Christ as individuals and be welcomed back into the Jewish community with open arms. The writer of this Christ-exalting letter makes it crystal clear to them that to do so would actually be to move from power to impotence and never the other way around. Though the community who had remained in the shadows of Judaism appeared 
to have power. Things were not what they seemed. The power belongs solely to the unshakable kingdom of Jesus Christ, whose king himself was the very substance of every single one of those shadows whom their persecutors were suppressing in unrighteousness. The kingdom to which the shadow dwellers fought so vehemently to uphold would be shaken and were told there will be nothing left. Their kingdom was defined by little shows of flickering, earthly, fleeting power. But the kingdom of Jesus Christ, marked by its supernatural love, was being refined through its trials. And it would prove to be unshakable for all of eternity. It truly is a glorious picture here of the way in which God sanctifies his kingdom through trials and tribulations, refining his people with fire, making them and molding them more and more into the image of their king. Beloved, we are called here to be marked out in distinction from this world by our love. And this morning we will see that this mark is never divorced from another critical mark. One that we have to get right if we're to understand it. And that's namely the mark of our purity in Jesus Christ. So let's look now together at the word of God this morning. I'd like you to follow along as I read once again Hebrews chapter 13, 1 through 8. Again, we will focus on verses 4 through 8 this morning. Hear now the word of our Lord. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners, as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we, bold, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember those who rule over you, who've spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for this time together in your word. We ask that you would remove from our minds all of those things that distract us, that we would be able to give our full attention to your word this morning, and that hearing your word, we would be those who, through the power of your spirit, are transformed by that word for your glory. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are looking once again at life within the unshakable kingdom of Jesus Christ. And after a very brief yet thought-provoking look at the love that will and that indeed must be evident in this kingdom, the writer moves on now to discuss a topic of great importance pertaining to the Christian life especially when considering our having a proper understanding of this love that was mentioned here at the outset. 
A Christian community is to be marked by its love, but it's also to be known for its purity. That word purity, if misunderstood or if misrepresented, can send the wrong message here. It's not that the writer is now, having spent so much of his time and his energy pointing to the perfection of Jesus Christ, is now calling on these Hebrews to live in sinless perfection themselves as if that were even a possibility. He's not saying that the church is to be an institution of self-righteous navel-gazers who are just convinced that they are nothing like the rest of the sinners out there and who believe that they have the whole sin thing very well rooted out of their lives. That would be a low view of the fall and its effects upon mankind. And it can and it always does lead only to self-righteousness and to self-reliance. If our perfection and the fight of sin were possible, then Jesus Christ would not need to have died in order to give us his. So the Christian community, even at its very best, will always have the stain of sin with it. Until, of course, we are all glorified in heaven when this corruptible flesh will be replaced with what is truly incorruptible. So what do I mean when I say that the Christian community will be a community recognized by its purity? Jesus Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death and delivered us into the perfect law of freedom. He has taken our impurities to the cross, and there he has paid the penalty that our impurities have earned in full. He has taken that penalty upon himself, and he's covered us with his spotless perfection. He has covered us, beloved, with his purity. By nature of our union with him, we are now pure in Jesus Christ by faith. And though perfection only comes for us when we are glorified, we are in process of being transformed by that very grace right now. It's for that reason that the Apostle Paul, when writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19 says, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Though we are not sinless, Our lives should be bearing forth the fruits of our gratitude to Jesus Christ for his gracious work on our behalf. We ought to be those who are recognized as being distinct from the rest of this world. This does not mean that we are to be sour-faced and stoic in our faith. In fact, quite the contrary. Our joy or our delights ought to be those things that Almighty God has so graciously and mercifully given to you and I to delight in. And We find that those things that were created for our delight and for God's glory are contrary to the inclination of the flesh. And so he speaks to an area of our lives where this impurity is so easily recognizable in the world and where we should be standing out in our appreciation of God's gifts created for our delight. 
And one of those areas, beloved, is the gift of marriage. It's not for no reason that he says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Right? It's a gift from God to the church. I'm not going to spend too much time this morning on marriage itself because I think there is an overriding principle here that the writer is getting at that really seeps into every area of our life in Christ, our life in Christian community. One does not have to spend too much time thinking about this area of marriage before concluding that the church has a very different standard of marriage than the world does. We live in a culture that has continually attacked the very institution of marriage by seeking to destroy any semblance of responsibility to the Word of God and what the Word of God has to say about marriage. Beloved, we see it all around us. I want to tell you, we see it in the constant infidelity that has rocked even the Christian community throughout its history. We've seen it recently. We see it in the divorces that are granted as readily and as easily as mere real estate transactions. We see it in the forcing out of acceptance. Even the very idea that marriage was created to be held under the authority of Almighty God and to exist between a man and a woman. We can hardly pick up our newspapers today. We can hardly turn the TV on and not hear about another state granting that marriage can and even must exist between members of the same sex. Some even quoting scripture's ideal of love as the proof positive that we are not to be so thick-headed as to believe that God would actually forbid the marriage of those who happen to be of the same sex and in love with one another. However, the writer here is making exactly that kind of point. And it's one, beloved, that we have to take note of. The ideal or the virtue of Christian love cannot exist apart from purity. Do you understand? Those two must be found together. One flows necessarily out of the other. And the standard for purity is found in the word of God alone. Love that stands in direct opposition to the word of God is the world's flawed definition of love. And it's far, far less than the love that we spoke of last week. It's far less than the love that the Apostle Paul describes with all of those challenging verbs in 1 Corinthians 13. And it stands out in stark contrast to the love that ought to be flowing out of the people of God. First towards God, and then towards our neighbors. Purity and love must be found together. John made this point in his first letter, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, where he states very clearly, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Beloved, the church of Jesus Christ must stand upon the truth that God has given to us in his word. We are to be holy. We are to be separate from the world and recognized as those who are living in joyful, thankful obedience to the word of God. We do not do it perfectly, but we are not to go contrary to that word and call pure what God has called sin. Marriage was given to the church of Jesus Christ. It's a reflection of that greatest relationship that exists between the Lord Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. We need to understand it. It was given for our edification. It was given for our appreciation to God for the countless gifts that he freely gives to those whom he has called his children. Do you understand? It's another blessing that God has given to his church. And therefore the writer says, look, marriage is honorable among all. In the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will punish. The church will be marked out in the world by its purity as we live lives that are sacrifices of praise because of the amazing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the standard for that purity that sets us apart is the word of God. We're being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ through that word. That word for the Christian. The one who has been purchased through the precious blood of Christ is a delight. It should be a delight because it was meant to be enjoyed. It's to be treasured above all other things. It brings me to the second thing that I would point out here, and that is that the writer is pointing, he's pointing out what true faith in Jesus Christ produces within the church and within us, that is you and I as members of that church. And it's essential for us to see it because in a sense, all of these things flow from it. He points these struggling Hebrew converts, he points you and I, beloved, away from the covetousness that permeates the world's thoughts and actions and he points us to what? Contentment. He calls us to be content with such things as we have been given. Beloved, I want to tell you it should give us serious pause here to consider what the writer of this letter is saying. You know, we live in a day when the culture that surrounds us believes that truly the one who, that has piled up the most things at death wins. We live in this busy world that is constantly striving to reach that next level, to achieve that next big thing, to conquer just one more obstacle, to have just one more security, to find just one more thing to try and take pleasure in. And unfortunately, now as then, 
This was not simply a problem in the world. It has infected the church of Jesus Christ. Through the same lie. Did God really say? Right? It's the continual refrain of our enemy, the devil. It's the one he's constantly bringing to our minds. It was his attack on the veracity of God's word in the garden with Eve. Would God really want you to be deprived of just one more pleasure in this life? Did he really say? Surely God seeks your happiness above everything else, right? Did he really put limits on something as powerful as pleasure? Isn't that just like God? That great cosmic killjoy to destroy your chance at happiness, to obliterate any chance that you might have had to be content? Sounds familiar, right? You think of it in terms of these particular Hebrews, right? Just just look at God. You've given Him everything. And how does He repay you for risking your very lives following Jesus Christ? He rewards you with more suffering. Did He really say that you could not have a foot in both worlds? Come on, go back to the shadows. Where at least you had a livable amount of peace in your life. Go back to the ceremony of the law where at least the persecution will stop. They will receive you with open arms. They will love you. They will protect you. I mean, come on, did God really say? With all this temptation, the writer in his love for them has set before them the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole point of this letter, beloved, is that we understand that the Lord Jesus Christ truly is the greatest everything. We've heard it all along, right? This is the greatest revelation. This is the greatest high priest. This is the great one who ushered in that newer, greater covenant. This is the one who offered up the greatest sacrifice. The one who spilled the greatest blood through which he purchased a bride that he would make into the greatest, most glorious bride ever to be manifested on earth or in heaven. This is the one who made the greatest promises. Jesus Christ, the greatest delight to be known by any man, woman, or child who have the eyes to see him. And he calls these his sheep. He calls us beloved because of Jesus Christ, To put to silence the filthy lying tongue of Satan, our enemy. To quell the shrill voice of our own rotten flesh. To do away with the lies and to learn to delight in the truth. Do you understand? He's not calling on them and he's not calling on us for that matter to be content with merely the things that God has blessed us with. He's not saying, look, I've given you a wife, a husband, I've given you children, land, wealth, comfort, ease, position, reputation. He's not calling on them to look at how they are perceived in the eyes of men. He's saying, look how the Lord has blessed you. He's not saying, look how the Lord has blessed you, now just be grateful. That's not what he's saying. 
All of these things may certainly be blessings we have received from the very hand of God. They're all wonderful things that we ought to spend our lives thanking Almighty God for. Even as we thank Him for the discipline that moves us closer and closer and closer to glory and the end of our race. Everything we receive, we receive from the hand of God our Father and we ought to be thankful. We ought to be content in all of those things, but that's not what he's calling them. That's not what he's calling us to here. He says, be content with such things as you have. And the wise among among us say, oh, okay, what things? Well, he mentions but two of them. The promises of Almighty God And that long list of his people who point to the surety of his faithfulness to bring about everything that he has promised. Look at what he says. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can men do to me? Beloved, do you hear this morning the glorious ring of that promise? That word, boldly, it's the same Greek word that we translate elsewhere as with confidence. Faith embraces the promises of God. It hopes in them. It banks on them. It trusts the word of God for them. It clings to them. Has that not been the point of the entire letter? Cling to Jesus Christ, the greatest, the culmination of every single promise of God and live as one who is ever being moved closer and closer to Zion? Live as one who has no need to fear man or this world. Because of Jesus Christ, we truly have nothing to fear. Beloved, do you see the glory in that? Does it make your heart sing this morning? Understand, in Jesus Christ, we have been bought with a price. We are no longer our own, nor do we belong to anyone else on this side of heaven. We belong to our faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the battle that needed to be waged for our soul has already been won. It's finished. Do you see? What on earth could bring you more comfort, more peace, more joy, more pleasure than sweet communion with the captain of your salvation? The one who rode humbly into Jerusalem that day to lay down his life for yours, to throw down sin, death, and the devil for eternity. Is he your highest delight this morning? Because, beloved, The truth is, no matter how much we chase pleasure, there's no pleasure higher than this one. Satan is a liar. He will use this world and its allurements to distract you. Your flesh will long to look towards even good things. Things like prayer and meditation upon the word of God is just another thing that you have to do in the Christian life. But it ought to be your joy. Have you considered the cost of your being able to approach the throne of Almighty God and have communion with Him? Because it costs something. 
It cost Jesus Christ suffering the cross. Suffering the full wrath of Almighty God against our sin. Coming to Him in prayer. Come partaking of the, the sacraments as we do so often here. Should never be just a going through the motions. It should never be anything like work. Beloved, it should be your joy. As should be every gift of God to his people. He gave marriage to the church for your joy. He gave the comfort of sweet loving fellowship to the church. He gives his loving discipline to the church. He gives his sanctifying grace to the church. And all of it is our delight if we belong to Jesus Christ. All the world's entrapments and trinkets are at best pleasurable for a moment. Then they reveal themselves for what they are. They are death. But life in Jesus Christ, life as an integral part of his bride who's being prepared for glory, is a life that is ultimately fulfilling and marked with joy. It's a life marked with peace, a life marked by faith. What gift could we receive that's more precious than these promises? The writer then once again points them to God's faithfulness as it's been manifested in the lives of his people throughout the ages, including the present time they're living in. He says, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Beloved, we are to love one another in the church of Jesus Christ. We are to seek to be holy even as our Lord is holy. Motivated by the sweet message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are to be content in Jesus Christ and his benefits and live lives marked out by grateful obedience to the word of God. Looking to the lives of others through the ages, we are to see and rest in God's faithfulness to bring this about in his church. You notice that the writer is not exhorting his hearers. He's not telling them to go out and find themselves a guru. He's not telling them to find someone's teaching that you like and go and emulate that person. Emulate their personality, emulate their their manner of life. No, he says no such thing here. He calls them to consider the outcome of the lives of those that Almighty God is using to help them along the way as they inch closer and closer to glory. Follow their faith. Not their person, their faith. He's calling on them to see that their their peace and their rest and their passion for the gospel and to see it as but the fruit of saving faith. See the way they cling to Jesus. Run to Jesus like they do. It's a foreign concept to so many where we see authority as a constant threat to our own happiness. Or anyone who would dare to tell me what to do or worse, tell me that I'm wrong, commits a serious offense against my own world of self-rule. Beloved, your leaders in the church of Jesus Christ have been cloaked with the authority of Christ. And they are being used by Almighty God to preserve, to protect, and to bless your very soul. I want to ask you this morning, is that the way you see it? The whole point here 
is that the church of Jesus Christ is given by God for his glory and ultimately for our guidance as we travel together and make our way toward Zion. He's given us help in our pilgrimage. The church is not a deterrent to your journey. and It is a necessary aid for you on the way. It is a protector of God's majestic name upon the earth. And it has been so from the very beginning. You look down the corridor of church history. You see God's faithfulness to his people in Jesus Christ. His message of salvation has not evolved over time, but by the grace of God, even through the foolishness of preaching, he's making his glory burn brighter and brighter and brighter. And he's calling you. Not to a life of restricted joy. This is where we get it wrong. He's not calling you to a life of restricted joy. He's calling you to a life of delighting in the very things that you were created in Christ Jesus to live in. He's pointing you to Jesus Christ. The fount of every blessing and he's calling you to come and to drink long and deep to satisfy the most intense thirst to the glory of almighty God. Through his church, he's giving you the love that you so desperately need. And he's making it your joy to give that love in return. He's calling you to purity, to obedience to his word, and he's sanctifying you hour by hour, minute by minute, as you avail yourself to his means of grace. And he's pointing you to the work, his work, and the lives of men, and he's assuring you of his faithfulness from the very beginning of time. And so the great question, beloved, are you content? In these things. Beloved, what do you think this morning about the church of Jesus Christ? Is it your blessing in this dark, death ridden world? Or is it something else entirely to you? Do you hear its encouragements to stay the course by faith which he gives, clinging to Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of your faith? Or are you pursuing some other pleasure much more intense than the last? Being satisfied in the murmuring of your fallen flesh with its constant cry of did God really say? He did say. He gives us his truth and his word. Beloved, I encourage you this morning to cling to the promises of Jesus Christ. And silence the foolishness of your flesh. And tune your heart to sing his praise now and forever. Amen. Let's pray.